since you've reached a certain Flip. age, you have the clap on and clap off. So you don't have to get up and break a hip potentially. I'm actually pushing my med alert right now. <laughs> I've fallen. I've fallen and I can't get up. I've fallen into despair and I can't <laughs> I get up. I've fallen into despair and I can't get up sitting here across from Artie. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. On today's episode, we'll talk about the death of GIFs. GIFs? GIFs? Not sure. That's a peanut butter. The, the pressures U.S. policy is placing on the chip industry. Sorry, China. And of course, the coming fart tax. And later, we'll talk with Shannon O'Neill of the Council on Foreign Relations about regionalization, why we should think about globalization differently. It's not as bad as you think. And of course, the best tacos in New York City. Sorry, kebab. Not sorry. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. Well, welcome to episode 39. Yeah, we, we've lasted that long. It's the atomic number of yttrium, which in addition to being a typo, a typo here. in addition to being a typo, it's the most, it's most importantly used in LEDs and phosphors. It's particularly the red phosphors in television set cathode ray tubes displays. Hashtag Roxanne. That's like back in the day when we had <laughs> made cathode a, tubes. I really, I really made an effort. I thought you would be yeah. appreciate that. I love reference. cathode tubes. That we had, you know, the way the TVs were it was as big the, as your head. The hashtag reference to a Sting song, which probably most people didn't get until I just explained it. In any case, yttrium is also used in the production of electrodes, electronic filters, lasers, superconductors, and various medical applications. It's also tracing various materials to enhance their properties. And yeah. I did not make that up. You don't have to put on your red light. Is this what I wanted oh, because, to for you to know? Because you've got yttrium. <laughs> <laughs> if you do, however, put on your red light, yttrium is there to help you to help it be redder. I, some, when I hear things like this, I don't know how we made it to 39 episodes. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> We're filing this under news that no one asked for. Uh, it's an update on the Beyond Meat COO who was arrested and then fired for punching another driver and biting his nose off after <laughs> University of Arkansas American football game. And who among us has not bitten somebody's off? Hey, come nose on, off piece after. of an ear, maybe a little bit of a nose. Sure. I think he was just angry that he was in Arkansas. Yeah, yeah, you know how, you know how it gets. Anyway, it seems he wasn't the only one who bit off a bit more than he could chew. Employment-wise, the chief supply chain officer has also left the company it was announced. He recently stepped down. No news if it was biting related. We're assuming it's related to supply chains because, you know, we've got to make this podcast about something. But be sure to stay tuned to the next episode for an update to find out why he actually left. And if some cartilage is missing. <laughs> but also, I guess it's a much more complex supply chain than meat. Yeah, meat and Beyond other meat. Things. You've meat, got meat like and 75 things. ingredients coming from like palm oil from Malaysia and all this other stuff. You, you probably have I'm mostly hung a big up, issue. I'm mostly hung up about the cartilage. Yeah. Like people's nose joints. Doesn't grow back. No, oh, it can be. It does. You can grow a nose. Can you? Yeah. You've tried. No, you remember that guy into the air? Dr. Beck Weathers into thin air. Did he lose his hands too? Yeah. I don't think they grew those. Not but they cartilage. grew a nose. But that's, yeah, I, I think that's where that we're going that with this, the cartilage the thing. Anyway. So if you do happen to be in traffic with the CEO of Beyond Meat, oh, there's, a, there's a solution. <laughs> <laughs> we can grow a nose. What, what there's not a solution for is living in Arkansas. Anyway, we've got some listener feedback. I'm really excited. It's been a while since we've, we've, we've had this. We've mainly just talked about ourselves last couple of episodes. <laughs> One listener wrote us to tell 
tell us that, quote, he's two episodes in on trades planning and he absolutely loves it. Thanks for all the work you do. And also, as a former study abroad at Webster University here in Geneva, I must say that El Baraka is the best kebab spot. Okay, delete. <laughs> delete. What is this? I've never heard of El Baraka. Well, there's only one way to find out. Get out there and try it. Yeah. All right, so listeners. You've got to diversify the supply chain. Absolutely not. Diversify the supply chain. <laughs> anyway, another listener also wrote us to tell us that, quote, I've just listened to the latest two episodes and I am hooked. I absolutely love it. Great job, guys. This is the best, quote, baddest idea you've ever had. And I feel like from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Baddest, bad idea. Best, baddest idea. Best, baddest idea. A New Yorker magazine. <laughs> yes, exactly. The best, baddest wedding dresses to wear at your next Actually, wedding. I just thought, I just fast forwarded to, to a cover of New York magazine with the two of us on it. The okay. best, baddest idea ever. The best, baddest podcast ever made. Also, I mean, this isn't listener feedback, but it turns out that gifs, gifs, gifs are dead. Those are jiffy as a peanut butter. So I'm really glad these are these little things that move around. It's sort of like Homer Simpson moving in through the bushes. The things I spam the uh, chat. trade-splaining yeah. chat with. So I'm glad to report I never really learned to use them. I didn't even know where to find them. I, don't know. I was looking on YouTube or in your phone the internet. Han- in your phone, Hansel. But luckily, <laughs> luckily, they've been declared dead. Apparently, the, the real height of it was 2007 when you were just entering, I, I believe, the eighth grade. Pretty. This was, that was the big year for gifts. Now there's this company, Giphy, which not only has no source of revenue by their own admission and no future source of revenue, but to prove that they're really out of step, they were bought by Meta. I was, just, I was just about to say they were doing God's work <laughs> until because they were not making money. And just giving us gifts. I think that we did confirm with with uh, Valentina and Michelle that they can still be used sparingly and not be cringe. I'm part of the YOLO camp with the gifts. <laughs> it's like, I'm all or nothing. You're you, going to get a thousand of them? You only live once, so therefore don't use them. <laughs> or use them. I think our listeners need a clarification there. Use them, folks. Make your own conclusions out there. They're only for boomers. And when people say boomers, they actually mean me. Even though, of course, I was born in the baby bust just after the baby boom. You're a boomer in my heart. Also because I don't know Thank too you. many That's people. Great. I don't yeah. know so many people older than you. So, I mentioned last week Rob was quiet quitting before we got into the news segment. Happy to announce that Rob has not quiet quitted. He's actually very much with us. And so with that, we can jump right into this week's What Went Wrong This Week segment. Sorry, just got back to the microphone. What's... I was telling them that you're back. Oh, I'm back. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. You're back like mm-hmm. uh, Voldemort. Do Harry not, Potter gift. Do not speak my name. It's a Harry Potter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're calling this a wallop from Washington. That's a quote from the article in, I believe it was the FT. It seems that the U.S.'s new export control measures will hit China especially hard. That's according to a number of experts. As without access to U.S. technology, China will apparently struggle, it seems, to maintain its fast expansion into AI and supercomputing. So these are two areas that are quite important for the Chinese military, among others, as well as cloud computing. An expert on the Chinese semiconductor industry said that the whole point of the U.S. policy was to kneecap Chinese artificial intelligence, ow, and high-performance computing. It also highlights an interesting way that trade and talent is becoming fragmented. This is something you pointed out, Rob. The measures which took effect the past week or so not only curb shipments of advanced chip tools and other American tech, but also block U.S. citizens and permanent residents from supporting the development, production, or use of certain high-tech chips and factories located in China. So it's pretty broad 
and what they're what could fall under that description. Yeah, and we even see now reports of TSMC, one of the big chip companies, suspending shipments to China. Mm-hmm. We see all sorts of these executives who are getting legal advice on whether they stay with the current company. It's difficult to renounce U.S. citizenship for the time being. They will be kind of in a, in a difficult situation. And I think this policy may be working better than foreseen. It was thought this, along with the subsidies, might help favor the U.S. industry. It might help dilute or break down these links with the Chinese industry. It might slow their growth. But actually, it's been quite disruptive in the short term. So it's quite, it's interesting to see probably one of the most fast-moving fragmentations that we're seeing. This one hit sharply. And it's a very, I guess it's a small segment, but a very important segment of the industry. So it's something we've got to look at. Also, I had forgotten about this, but Huawei, a couple of years back, was also hit with similar export controls, access to chip technology, et cetera. And that really kneecapped the company. I don't. But they were uh, targeted as a company rather than as a whole industry or yeah. a whole technology. It's yeah. a step further, that's true. But it shows that I guess there are consequences. Now the, the question is, what will be the probably inevitable, I would say, reaction? coming from China. So it does raise the stakes quite a bit. On that fragmentation bit, so we've we've been hearing quite a lot about this, and there was an interesting article with Dr. Ngozi from the WTO recently, and it's basically highlighting, or she's highlighting, how geopolitical tensions in the COVID-19 pandemic have prompted governments to veer towards protectionism. She's come out and said that that's actually not a great idea for a number of reasons. Essentially, the argument is that building more diverse supply chains would better serve the cause of global resilience. She also cites a simulation by WTO economists where she warns that if the world were to fragment, it would result in at least 5% loss of uh, real GDP uh, over the long term. So to quote her, we should remember that a fragmented world can also be a very costly world. Yeah, and I think this it's, it's interesting to get a number. So 5% of, of real GDP is massive. So it's a huge number. It's also, you know, kind of reinforces what we know from economics class, which is, you know, you want more options, you want things to be more efficiently distributed. And this is this goes across things. And of course, her interest is not just in the US, Europe and China, but also small, you know, companies in these countries will be torn which technology do they use, which standards do they use, which markets do they trade into. We see it already in, in the work we're doing in, in trade promotions. So I think it's a, it's a really important reminder or you know, flag-waving by the WTO to say this is exactly what WTO was created to kind of address. Since you're bringing me down, I'm going to jump in with a joke, and that is that Joy Division once said, love will, will tear us apart. In this case, I think we should change that to trade may change, tear us apart. You don't think love's behind all this? Anyway, we're hardest on the ones we love. That's true. That, that's a good. That's a good negotiating position. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's a really good. That's a way to give the, give everybody an out. Anyway, Rob brought this up before we started recording, and that is that, that there was a few reports out talking about how China has been losing its manufacturing dominance to nearby countries. It seems, and on top of that, that comes with soaring energy prices. The EU industry is talking about gas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, as I said, it's picking up a story that Rob has been watching diligently. So I'll let him talk a bit more about how your goods may no longer actually all be made in China, but rather spread out. Spread out, but not spread out close to home. So we see that uh, already there was, there was you know, rising costs in China, rising um, labor costs in particular. Also other things, China's kind of in, more inward focus on Chinese consumers and so on. So we saw some manufacturing kind of being pushed out to nearby countries. That's been accelerated by tariffs. It's been accelerated by the effects of zero COVID policy lockdowns you mentioned. So that's really become a massive disruptor. So what what we see is that countries like Vietnam, Malaysia, Bangladesh, India, Taiwan 
are taking up the slack. And in particular, I was reading a CNBC story, which had some nice data on clothing, furniture, footwear, luggage. So these are just some of kind of consumer industries. But we see that, that there's, there's a now measurable, already measurable movement out of China towards these countries, not towards the U.S., not towards Europe. In the interim, what we see in the European apparel industry is that, which is primarily textiles, right? They're not doing a lot of apparel, but they're doing some specialized types of apparel. So in textiles, these are these are very energy-intensive, capital-intensive companies. They do these long runs of textiles and, and materials that are then shipped back out to be manufactured elsewhere. So these guys now, with this huge energy rises, are becoming less and less competitive, less and less able to do the thing they're supposed to do, which is respond very quickly to brands who want these short to turnaround times. Mm-hmm. Brands like Zara are, are penalizing these companies based on the contracts they have in place. Mm-hmm. They're thinking of moving sourcing out to places like Turkey. And we also see across Europe, s- some folks have more money to subsidize their local industry than others. That's the Germans, obviously, mm-hmm. but also the French with the Italians lagging far behind. So they've got these nice clusters of companies that work for places like Gucci and so on, and and Benetton and so on. Those guys are really suffering with these higher energy prices. So we we see the European uh, textile, European fi- fashion industry under a lot of pressure right now. I think this raises for me a question which we've sort of been treading around the lines of, and that is what happens to the quote-unquote workers that are left behind? And that's a question that I don't think... I don't think people in the, the trade space necessarily are built to have an answer to, but it's an important one. Yeah, and we didn't see their addiction to very cheap gas. I didn't know about it until this crisis came about. Didn't have a car. Thanks. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> but you're right. It's not a trade guy's decision. This is more industrial policy. It's more accompanying measures that we've talked about, even with Shannon, who's coming up a little bit later. Yeah, that's a good segue into something that our listeners may have thought we wouldn't talk about. Rising food prices. (laughs) So the surging dollar combined with inflation, as I said, was wreaking, is still wreaking havoc on developed and developing countries alike. So it's reduced purchasing power and dollar shortages are compounding these wider strains that we're seeing across global food systems. We've talked about this in previous episodes. It was kind of, we were hoping that there would be some solution, but it doesn't seem to be the case because of all these extra issues like inflation. It's making things much more difficult difficult for developing countries. The countries that rely on these food imports are grappling with this combination of high interest rates, the soaring dollar, as I said, and these higher commodity prices. So it kills their power to sort of pay for goods that are mainly priced in in U.S. dollars, funnily enough. And uh, this sort of depletes their foreign currency reserves. So it's sort of a vicious circle. And again, this has led to not only an issue for developing countries, but also rising negative sentiment in the EU. So there was a really interesting article in the New York Times recently, how electorates across Europe are getting kind of fed up with the Russian war in Ukraine, mainly over the rise in, in energy prices and the resulting inflation, etc. So it's it's really leading to a host of issues for basically all involved. So it'll be interesting to see how we come out of that. I think that the, the issue of the dollar is, is massive. We know that the Federal Reserve is not going to stop tightening. The U.S. economy is still fairly strong, still a lot of jobs being created, still, still inflation is still pretty... The upward pressure on prices is still there pretty high. I knew it was, it was, it was out. <laughs> but what's interesting, and right behind it, we've been talking about the housing crisis, the crisis of you know people with housing loans in China. It's now coming again to the U.S. and developed countries where people have variable mortgages. And apparently the U.S., we all know there's 30-year fixed mortgages is kind of the common way to do it. But apparently in Europe, variable mortgages are very common. So you're going to see people's mortgage rates going up, their ability to make their payments go down. And that's going to subtract a lot of wealth from a lot of people. Something like, I don't know, a third or 40% of wealth worldwide is in property. 
So this will reduce people's buying power, it'll reduce consumption. So that's another happy, happy note we can ring today's trades. We are the we are the fun police. <laughs> <laughs> so buy more plastic watches like Artie, folks. Yeah, they're bioceramic. <laughs> Shannon K. O'Neill is the Vice President and Deputy Director of Studies, as well as the Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. My old job. She's an expert on trade, globalization, industrial policy in the Americas, and has taught at Harvard and Columbia Universities. Now, those are pretty good. O'Neill has lived and worked in Mexico and Argentina, where her career began in emerging markets finance before turning to policy. She's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and an author of two books, her first, Two Nations Indivisible on U.S. relations with Mexico, and her latest, The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter, is the subject of this podcast. She joins us from New York City, not to be confused with Artie's old hometown of Staten Island, New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) So, Shannon, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Tell us a little about yourself. How did you end up where you are today? Well, I grew up in Akron, Ohio, which is in the Midwest of the United States. I left to go to college and then bounced around a bit. I went and lived in Mexico City and was working for an investment bank there, so doing emerging markets. I ended up working throughout Latin America. And during that time, seeing big changes, big peso crises and democratization and things, I really got interested in in trade and international economic issues. So I went back and did a PhD. When I was doing my PhD, I lived again in Mexico City and also in Buenos Aires and Argentina. I finished my PhD taught for a year at Columbia University in New York City, and then joined the Council on Foreign Relations, which is a nonprofit organization. We have a think tank that has a whole host of scholars that look at international issues. And we also publish Foreign Affairs, a journal. So on that, your new book is out. Your book talks a little bit how it's a huge mistake for the U.S. to turn against free trade and to sort of try to go it alone in the global economy. This is something I guess we've heard quite a lot, not just on the podcast with the people we talk to, but you know, in general. But in your own words, why is this something that the U.S. should sort of lean into, if you will? Because we've heard lots of arguments to the, to the contrary. You have huge swaths of the population, I should say, who are not in favor of that. Why should that be the case? So the book that I've come out, it's called The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. And that gets a little bit to why we shouldn't just retreat and become protectionists. And what I find in the research that I did for the book is that Globalization, as we think about this big juggernaut, is actually not as powerful. It's not as penetrating. It's much more shallow. There's only about two dozen countries that have actually really transformed their economies with quote unquote globalization, where they've seen trade as a percentage of GDP double or more. Um, There are actually almost 90 countries around the world where trade as part of the economy stayed the same or it shrunk. They actually deglobalized. So it's not this huge phenomenon. But what we have seen over this last 40 plus years is the rise and evolution of what we usually call global supply chains, so international supply chains. And that is really the crux of the economic transformation that we've seen. And so before this time, back in the early 20th century or mid 20th century, a lot of what people sent out into the world, a lot of what companies sent out into the world were finished goods. It was a car or a machine or a bottle of wine or all kinds of other things. Today, when you look at what flows around the world, about 75% or more are what they call intermediate goods. or that's what economists call them. But these are the things that go into making a final product. And that really matters because by dividing it up, the making of something across a whole set of countries, you then can have economies of scale, you can have specialization, you can have different market access, you can have different labor skills or wage prices that allow you to make stuff 
more affordable, and better. And the challenge for the United States is if you try to do it alone when the rest of the world is making it all together, you're just not going to be able to compete. And that is where the United States is today in many industries. It's not connecting to other countries. It's not making things across a more regional or global platform. And so it's companies that are based in the US fall behind. I didn't know you were from Akron, Ohio, but as somebody from Akron, I guess you have probably more intimate knowledge of these manufacturing hubs or former manufacturing areas, which were, I don't want to say decimated, but has been said, I guess you could probably say that. How do you make the pitch to people who have had sort of their lives changed or upturned and they blame sort of globalization or X number of things that sort of take the place of globalization, whether it's China in the last couple of years or free trade in general? So this is where I think the narrative, and I hear this in Akron, Ohio, my mother still lives there and I have family members there and you hear this narrative and I would say we actually have it wrong. And partly we have the timing wrong. So when I look at Akron, Ohio, that my childhood when I was growing up there, that's when Akron was deindustrializing. That's when manufacturing is leaving. But it was 1970s and, and 1980s. The last tire came off one of the, the tire factory lines in 1982. So that was the last Akron made tire. And so this was a decade before NAFTA. This was a decade before you saw some of these trade agreements. And what I would actually argue, and as I was doing the research for this book, is that what the Akrons of the United States suffer from is not too much globalization, but too limited regionalization. And so the reason that Akron companies weren't able to compete in the 70s and 80s is that Japanese companies and other Asian companies, they were producing all across Asia. They had started creating regional supply chains that made their companies and their products better and not as expensive. And Europe was doing the same thing. And so Akron was there by itself. It was trying to make it all alone. And they didn't have the benefits of differences in wages or skills or resources that they might have had and that they started to have in the 1990s with NAFTA and then later on today with the USMCA. So this is where I think we get the debates wrong is that actually making things with other countries and particularly our neighbors, which I think is different than say making it in China, that that really brings a strength to places like Akron and keeps jobs there. Okay. So that sounds all great. I mean, really, I'm with you 100%. So then one of the things that we've been kind of watching is we know real wages were going down in the US, but also other places. For me, it feels like global companies, global capital and so on had it up on global labor that there's a general feeling of unfairness. So I think it's a thing, but you tell me if it's a thing or not. And then second, is more regionalization, more agreements somehow going to help us address this? So let me say two things. One is trade is not created equal necessarily for workers. So some trade is better for workers than other trade is good for workers. So let me lay that out a little bit. So when we trade the United States, when we trade with Mexico or Canada, we're much more likely to support US-based jobs. So just a statistic, the imports that come in from Mexico, on average, 40% of that product was actually made in the United States. So made by US workers, by US suppliers. These are those pieces and parts that go down to Mexico for assembly. So that supports US factories. So that's part of it. Canada, we see a similar number. 25% of what comes in from Canada was actually made in the United States. If you take that statistic for China, it's only 4%. So basically nothing that comes in that's in a Chinese import was actually made in the United States. 40% for the US, 25% for Canada, only 4% for China. So that's one side. The other thing we know is that jobs that are connected to trade, and here lots of studies have done this, on average pay somewhere between 15 and 20% more than jobs that aren't part of that global economy in the United States. So these are the good jobs that politicians always are trying to find, are those that are created and tied to trade. So you put those two things together, 
You want to create better jobs that pay better. Those are going to be jobs that involve trade. And where are the jobs that involve trade going to actually help U.S. workers and really involve U.S. factories? They're going to be the jobs and the trade that is tied to those countries nearby, in particular our neighbors. Now, I think that's really well said and actually put together really well. How do we get this message out? Because folks don't believe it. So folks just don't, they, they aren't hearing it. They don't believe it. A lot of people are demagoguing against it, for sure are demagoguing against it. Maybe it's counterintuitive. So we've been talking about, first of all, trade is maybe a small portion of a lot of the developments facing workers. But second, there are a lot of good aspects. There are a lot of ways we'd like to explain trade better. How do we, do, I mean, Council on Foreign Relations, one of those places trying to do it. How do we get the message out? Apart from this podcast, which obviously has- Which a, is great. Has an immense- it's This podcast, of course. <laughs> has an immense impact. It's tremendous. Yeah, tremendous. You know, I think the message that needs to get out here, which is a hard one, but is a true one, boils down to this. We can, with protectionism, we can have a bigger slice of a small and shrinking pie. That would be the U.S. economy and what the U.S. consumers are buying. So more parts can be made in the United States, but only appealing to U.S. consumers. And those products are going to be more expensive than they would have been. So when your car costs $2,000 more, maybe you wait six months before you buy a new one or you don't replace your washing machine. You just fix it because it costs more. So we can have that bigger slice of that smaller pie of the U.S. economy, or we can go for the global pie, the world economy. We can try to appeal to the 8 billion consumers that are out there, 95% of them that live beyond the United States, the billion new people that are going to enter the middle class over this next decade, most of them are going to be in Asia. We can try to sell to them. And these are the jobs, the trade jobs that are going to pay more. But the way to do that, to be able to make products that are high quality and also affordable for that potential global consumer, we have to have it with others. We have to combine. We have to use economies of scale. We have to create supply chains and regional supply chains are the ones that are going to support the most U.S. jobs in that process. So how do we get this out there? Partly we talk about it, but I do think that actually you look at polls that are taken of U.S. consumers or U.S. voters, and most of them actually understand that trade is a good thing, that it's an opportunity. So we have a base there to build on, but we need those leaders out there who are talking about it this way. On that, if you could change one thing or you could make one thing happen, you wave a magic wand. I shouldn't say that because the Harry Potter people will probably sue us. <laughs> Not again. If, if you could, If you could do one thing that hasn't happened yet, whether that's, I don't know, better unemployment insurance for people who lose their jobs because of trade disruptions, which are, as we all agree, even though we're biased, that trade is a good thing on the whole. What is that one thing you would do? And I know, it, granted, there's plenty of things that need to be done in this space, but what for you would be a priority? You know, one thing the United States has done is they have tried to do this internationalization. They've tried to do it on the cheap. So they have not provided, as you were saying, unemployment insurance, they've not provided healthcare, they've not provided the education. We haven't really spent to create a welfare state, which nobody likes to talk about here in the United States. But the way you think about Europe, the way you think about other places where you provide a support if people move in and out of jobs, if they need some space to recover, if they need to gain new skills, that's something that we don't do particularly well here in the United States. And that I do think would be an important shift because this internationalization, this is creating big disruptions. That is for sure. For instance, let me give you an example of the car industry. We talk a lot about in the United States, jobs disappearing from the car industry. And if you live in the Akron, Ohio, or you live in Michigan, you've seen those jobs disappear. But if you look at the aggregate of auto jobs in the United States, there are not that many fewer. In fact, in some places, there's more actually. 
They've just moved to a different part of the United States. They're not in Janesville. They're no longer where they used to be. They haven't moved to Mexico. They haven't moved to Canada. They just happen to be in different states. But we don't tend to blame Alabama and Tennessee for the jobs lost in Michigan. But that's really what's happening is a moving around within the United States in many of these places. And that, I think, is also something. While these jobs move around, how can we help those who might not move with them find the next job they're going to take or find the next way that they're going to make their living? I do blame Alabama. World tight. Plus, their cars are so small, they're making now. They look different. Have you seen anybody from Alabama drive a <laughs> Kia? Have you ever seen a, an Impala station wagon that seats nine people comfortably? That's what I learned to drive on, son. Back in, what, the 60s, 70s? Yeah. <laughs> right around there? Yeah, early 80s. Anyway, yeah, Rob's sure. a station wagon. Yeah, yeah. No, we're going to cut this. It's fine. We're gonna- <laughs> Wood paneling. <laughs> that was you. <laughs> So, so Shannon, you are not an expat, which is kind of a first, might be a first for one of our podcast interviews. What's it like, in that case, being from the U.S., and what have you learned about your home country while living in your home country? Trick question. I've learned there's different parts to my home country. I was an expat at one point, but just not in Geneva. I was in in Mexico City and, and Argentina. And I've learned that the U.S. is a really different place. You can feel like an expat living in New York City after you grew up in Akron, Ohio. Well, what did you learn when you were in, say, Mexico City? I mean, what was reflected back on you in terms of their view of the U.S.? It's interesting. The Mexicans actually feel quite warmly to the United States, or many of them do. Many of them have family and ties here to the United States. It's the sort of upper crust of the Mexicans. There's a lot of warmth in Mexico toward the United States. That's what I learned. And as an O'Neill... Is, is globalization or regionalization to blame for uh, Colin Farrell movies? I don't know who's to blame for those, but, you know, my family left so long ago, we don't take any credit or blame. He's got good hair. Some people have a receding hairline. He has, his hairline is just going forward the older he gets. Have you noticed that? Yeah. I've watched a lot of Colin <laughs> Farrell movies. Might be a weave. Might be a weave. I don't know. It's probably a weave. <laughs> Maybe she's part of the Adams family. They all seem to be have the growing hairline. <laughs> Anyway. Okay. Now we move to something as important, probably more important, which is kebab. It's an extremely important source of nourishment here in Geneva. Some call it the national food. It's also grown regionally. So, yes. (laughs) So, (laughs) sourced regionally, much of it without passing the border legitimately. None of it. But have you consumed kebab in Geneva? And would you say Parfum de Beirut is the best kebab place here in Geneva? I sadly, on my one visit to Geneva, did not get to eat kebabs. I got to visit a lot of big bureaucratic buildings and I got to take a boat trip, but there were no kebabs on the boat trip. So I can't say. I have to come back and see. That sounds better than a kebab. So what's your fast food of choice and how should we visit it? Is it whether it's a taco joint, a ramen shop, like what is your guilty pleasure in New York City? And uh, I have to stop at these two because I could go on and on. I might start crying because I miss New York so much. So all we got is kebabs here. (laughs) The dollar slice. I think the best is tacos number one, which is in Chelsea Market. They're great. Greasy and great. I saw Jason Biggs there once, actually. I almost asked him if he'd- Eating tacos? uh, The joke would have been perfect if he had bought like an apple pie or something, but no. (laughs) Editor's note, I don't know. Is Chelsea part of New York City? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Chelsea Market. It's and on who's the West, Jason Biggs? West side. He's the guy from uh, American Pie. Oh, the guy with the... Okay. Yeah. yeah. With the, the apple pie. With the pie. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. He's, he's probably thinking of uh, Don... What's his name? Don... Not Don McLean. Don McLean. Oh, yeah. That's who Rob's thinking he of. He just sings. He doesn't eat the pie. Doesn't eat the pie <laughs> in any case. It's been a while. I think that might bring us to the end of today's interview. Uh, Shannon, thanks a lot for joining us. If people want to see more your book or more about what you're doing, where should they go? You can come to the Council on Foreign Relations website, and there's a whole bunch of what I do, but then also what my colleagues do. And there's 
great group of folks looking at trade issues, looking at all kinds of international issues. So come check it out. Excellent. Shannon, thanks for joining us once again on the podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. And if you're ever in Geneva, don't go to Parfum. Hey, Rob, why is your phone broken yet again? Well, it's been real wet out, Artie, and with all this rain, my phone slipped out of my hands and broke. Another expensive thing for me to fix. Rob, I think you would not have had this problem if you used Case Folklore, either now or in the summer, which you probably didn't use then either. Case Folklore? What's that? Case Folklore offers customized phone cases which come in an assortment of designs. Right here, you've got a Taylor Swift one, which, which I'm using. You can also find out more by checking out their Instagram page at Case Folklore and using the promo code SPLAINING at checkout. Don't get the Taylor Swift one. That was just a joke. We're not really fans. I wish I'd done that back when it was hot out, but I'll definitely go to Case Folklore now. Thanks, Case Folklore. That brings us to our next segment. This is when our correspondent, Michelle, talks to us not about discussion of the end of globalization because the end of globalization has ended, but rather about a new trend, the vibe shift. Over to you, Michelle. Thank you, Rob. Yes, so what I want to talk about today is the Swiss government creating a time bank. That's basically a place that's supposed to save all of the hours that you've spent volunteering so you could cash them out later. For now, they're only talking about incentivizing young people to volunteer their time with uh, with the elderly. For every hour they spend keeping company or taking care of an elderly person, they would receive a token and then they could cash out those tokens when they're old and pay other young people to take care of them, which sounds a little like multi-level marketing scheme to me. It sounds like me doing this podcast with Rob. I'm going to get a lot of tokens at the end of my life. <laughs> <laughs> comes with an NFT. This is so perfect. It comes Listen. with an NFT of a monkey with a, that, uh, that changes colors with the bananas. If, if listeners are wondering, we did not know that this was the story that Michelle was going to propose until we just heard it. And I love it. I'm going to get... The golden ticket. Thanks to you, Rob. Yeah. I'm going to get tokens from both of you. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's only going to be one person to take care of every two with so, the new demographics. And so has there been any, any reaction to this? So the WEF is calling it a solution for the future and sort of a visionary new step forward. But my question and the one of people on TikTok and Twitter in general is more like there's already people taking care of elderly people as their job. So why wouldn't we pay them like real money instead of tokens? Because tokens sound a little bit kind of not real for now. So I don't know what this bank is going to do. But, you know, what happens if you reach 60 and like your tokens are like, no, they're not valid anymore. What are you going to do? Sounds like an IOU or an NFT pick. Sounds exactly like an NFT. But can you sell them? I mean, I'm just thinking, what's the secondary market look like? You were for the carbon tax, weren't you? <laughs> yes. They don't exist for now, so I don't know if you can sell them. If you ah. can convince somebody, I'm sure. Okay. And they don't, like, what does it feel like to get a token? It's like a good, a good, fe- a warm feeling. You have an app and it says you have one token. Uh, you like Charlie, Charlie Bucket from Willy Wonka. From the <laughs> I've got a golden ticket. You don't feel like that at all. No? Well... Look, I'm the closest to perhaps redeeming these tokens, so I think I better... Rob is never going to have anybody take care of him because he's not going to use his tokens. He's just going to sell them all. That brings us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. Mainly anywhere else. All news is local. So uh, talking about where you live and local news, I understand the uh, city of New York, the five boroughs... One of which Gotham is Staten Island. 
has declared a war on rats. I think that's a great idea. What could go wrong? I'm old enough to know that when we say war on something, on anything, it usually doesn't go as planned. I remember the war on drugs is maybe still going this is on. Your, this is your head? This is your head on drugs, that one? War on terror, all that. Maybe John. <laughs> so what are we going to do? We're going to like... True New York fashion, they've really taken this problem by the scruff of his neck and have said that people are no longer allowed to throw out their garbage from 4 p.m., which is the old rule. Yeah. Now all garbage has to be put out on the street. And actually, I've lived in Switzerland for the better part of a decade. I forgot this was a thing in New York City. You leave the garbage out in the middle of the street on garbage collection day. Yeah. And you can only do that now from 8 p.m. because apparently the rats are intermittent fasting and they don't eat yes, after exactly. 8. They're <laughs> very strict meal times. No, this is going to really confuse the hell out of them. Yeah, it's going to oh, mess amazing. with their biological very clocks. Good idea. I mean, because they, they load on carbs before 8. Because if you do it after 8, you don't sleep well. Yeah, that's why they're so lean. Your circadian rhythm is messed up. That's well, actually, why they can fit through such small spaces. Actually, they're not lean. Have you seen New York rats? They are bulking up. It is, they don't, there's Size no cutting the in their gym schedule. It's just bulking. <laughs> So uh, this really hit, hit close to home. I know a lot of my relatives back home are incensed about this. Yeah, because everybody would be anti-rat, pr- pretty much everybody, except maybe Templeton from sure there's an NGO. Charlotte's Web. I'm sure there's an NGO out there who's advocating for the, for the rights of rats somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. This, this touched close to home, and I felt like I needed to, to use my voice yes. on trades planning and to shed light on, on the plight of New Yorkers everywhere. Yeah. The buffets closed, rats. But also, speaking of, of animals. Yeah, there's a the very important story coming out in New Zealand. I think you're probably all aware of it. New Zealand is considering taxing the methane emissions of livestock. This is the so-called fart tax. Their words, not ours. Apparently, the emission from livestock are much more powerful greenhouse gas creators than other forms of emissions, such as automobiles and so on. Also, urine is a big issue out there. And for New Zealand, which doesn't have a whole lot else going on, this is one of their biggest sources of emissions. So they're going to start taxing cow farts. Now, what I thought was, we talked you know, several episodes ago about a fart reduction technology here in Switzerland. Perhaps that could go over to New Zealand to reduce. Can we just be a bit more erudite and call it a flatulence? Flatulence reductions. Device? Because <laughs> uh, you're, you're, really, you're really dumbing this, dumbing this podcast down. We already do enough of that. And apparently in French, I learned, because I, re- I read the story in French, there's two words for the, what these emissions can be, a pe, which is a fart, or a ro, R-O-T, which is apparently something bigger and more one. menacing. I've heard the first one. There's, but both would be taxed. I wonder what it's supposed to incentivize, like le- fewer livestock. Could you use Bino or something to keep the farting down? I, I, I really hope that somebody invents a car, like in Back to the Future, where it runs on like trash it could run on cow farts yeah. i mean this is exactly the kind of spitballing we do on this program yeah this is really a win-win solution a wind-wind a wind-wind solution anyway <laughs> and finally there was a local story here a child here in geneva got scurvy shiver me timber yes exactly <laughs> he really really didn't want to eat his vegetables he really ate only sweets and cheese scurvy is not a thing Let's be it's honest. a thing it's a thing and i really felt for the kid this is exactly me i ate chips ahoy cookies and i drank hawaiian punch when i was growing up but the saving grace was hawaiian punch had added vitamin c that's the reason i didn't get scurvy folks my teeth didn't fall out but you got insulin resistance of some sort <laughs> that's from all that sugar <laughs> jesus christ it's exactly <laughs> I think that's it for our local news segment, but we'll keep an eye on the wires. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 39, brought to you by Yttrium, Kanye West's new album. 
China's unhappy chip industry, the rising dollar, and of course, cow farts. We also want to thank our guest Shannon O'Neill once again for joining us, as well as executive producer Michelle O'Gean and Valentina Saponana for highlighting the vibe shift, as well as helping to produce this episode and every TS episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or really anywhere else. Really anywhere. Yeah. Pretty much anywhere. We are omnipresent. Don't forget to leave us a review, most importantly, on Apple Podcasts. And Five stars. Spotify. Let us know what you think of the podcast, what we should also be talking about. Feel free to send us an email at trade.splaining at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining. And remember, folks, listen responsibly. And rate us. <laughs>